Hello and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor of Law and Smith Rowe Faculty Fellow in Business Law at the University of Wisconsin Law School, Yaron Nilly. Professor Nilly is truly a prolific author of numerous well-regarded articles focused on corporate law, corporate governance, and business. Today, Professor Neely is here to discuss his newest article, Side Letter Governance, forthcoming later this year in the Washington University Law Review and co-authored with Elizabeth DeFontenay of Duke University. Professor Neely's newest article focuses on a standard but difficult to study practice in private equity known as side letters. The article examines how side letters have evolved and are viewed in the industry now and what role they play in dealing with investors. The article also contributes new data and insights to the literature by collecting data on how side letters are currently employed and provides readers with recommendations for improving existing inefficient bargaining equilibriums. Thank you for returning to the podcast today, Professor Neely. Third time is indeed the charm. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Yes, the same goes for me. I'm going to start off right at the top and say that side letters is an entirely new area for me. So I'm going to ask a lot of fundamental questions, I think, but then we'll dig into some of the deeper issues that you and Professor DeFontenay uh, discuss in the paper. My very first question is, should listeners read or watch Barbarian to the Gate before or after they read the paper? What's the what's the movie and book about? <laughs> well, either way will be good. But yeah, I always um, have my students. Um, it's one of the recommended uh, uh movies to, to or, or readings to have it's um you know the title is a little bit uh you know barbarians but uh, it's basically a story about the emergence of the private equity um, um buyout industry in the 1980s and tells the story of the purchase of Algeria Nabisco, which was uh, a giant conglomerate um, that was making both cigarettes and Oreos. Um, but that was purchased by KKR, which is one of the most renowned uh, um, private equity uh, buyout firms in, in the world. And it's written in a very accessible and easy to uh, understand. And really, you can view the private equity uh, buyout as disruptors into the 1980s, and that um, stick around. So the model of private equity overall is to purchase companies, take them private, and do a bunch of changes to the way companies operate, to the management uh, team, to wasteful spending, and then take those companies back into the market. That's kind of like the model. And obviously management has viewed those uh, uh, actions as um, the barbarians at the gate coming to, come to coming for them, so to speak. So that's kind of like the, the name uh, for the book and the movie. Both are excellent. Okay. Well, now it's at the top of my list. I'll pop some popcorn tonight or over the weekend and I'll watch it and I'll get back to you. It's a, it's a very well done movie. The movie, especially, it's kind of a Hollywood production. So it gives some life to, you know, it's like an early version of Succession if you want to kind of like equate it a little bit. It's a 1990s early version of like what um, Succession did to to corporate law in the in 2020s. Okay, well, you've got me sold. But first, let's get back to your article and begin by reviewing the basics of private equity funds and leveraged buyouts just as you and Professor DeFontenay do at the start of your piece. Yeah, so as I just uh, said, I, I, you know, private equity, generally speaking, talks about um, those uh, fund managers that manage private funds, right? So the difference, the big difference between public and private funds is uh, to the extent uh, those are um, regulated, what uh, kind of disclosure you need to have. So those are private pools of fund uh, traditionally have been very um, lightly regulated by the SEC. There is uh, currently an attempt by the SEC to 
maybe uh, change that uh, to some extent. So that's something that is a, a hot topic, so to speak. But what they do, especially what we focus in the paper, private uh, equity buyout funds, is a model where uh, you pull investment from large institutional investors. So pension funds, the state of Wisconsin Investment Board, for instance, is one of the investors in private equity, banks, mutual funds, insurance companies, endowments, all invest in a private equity fund. And that fund goes uh, uh, managed by uh, a firm, let's say KKR, and they go and uh, through the life cycle of that fund, which is usually 10 to 12 years, they'll go buy three, four, five companies with a mixture of uh, equity and a lot of debt and utilize that time to make uh, significant changes to the way the companies operate and then sell them. And that's how they make the profit. Uh, uh, um, they also brought this financial innovation in the way they compensate themselves, uh, which is called the two and 20. So the managers of the fund get 2% um, of the um, com committed capital into the fund as management fee, but they also get 20% of whatever uh, profits they make for the fund. And that's very simple. There's, there's more complications and, and nuances to that, but uh, um, I think this is a good, really kind of a 30,000 feet overview of the private fund uh, industry. Yes, thank you. I needed it very much so to understand a little bit of this. That was a truly interesting paper, but I appreciated the introduction, the 30,000 foot view for sure. But now, how do side letters play into private equity and work with these investors? Yeah, so that's an interesting, very interesting phenomenon. And I can tell you um, one of the things that I was, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, closing a full circle. So when I uh, was an associate at uh, a law firm in New York, um, one of my favorite assignments uh, was to negotiate side letters uh, with investors. So I had a close uh, knowledge of it when I was uh, practicing and then always kept kind of a curious eye towards it. And it was great to be able to actually write an academic paper on it. So what happens is that investors in the private equity fund have two key uh, documents they negotiate. One is what's called the limited partnership agreement. So usually uh, private equity funds are organized as limited partnerships. So the investors in the fund are the limited partners and the manager of the fund is the general partner. Um, and there's a whole agreement that needs to govern the way the fund is managed, organized, uh, um, what happens uh, uh, at various contingencies, uh, how the money is being divided and all of, all of that. But in addition to that big uh, lengthy document, which can be 100 to 120 pages, a lot of investors also negotiate a different agreement, what is called a silo. Basically, they're asking for specific either clarification or additions and amendments to uh, the limited partnership agreement that cater to the specific needs, wants, desires, and so on. So that's the practice of Sidler. And one of the um, difficult and interesting things with the private equity is because they are private, there's no obligation to disclose anything. So uh, researchers uh, are often in the dark about uh, what those documents contain. And I think one of the biggest contributions of this project is the ability to shed light on the actual side letters. Uh, we're able to get a pretty large sample of side letters from investors uh, and uh, basically able to code them and kind of look under the hood and see what they do. As I said, I, we, we both, in, both Professor DeFantone and me uh, uh, worked in the industry. So we had a sense anecdotally of what senators uh, have and don't, but like we uh, weren't exposed to that large quantity of uh, senators and it was really great to be able to, to do that. Yep. You've seen some of the trees and now you have the forest with all this data to work with. That's great. Right. Yes. So I think you kind of alluded to this in this answer, but how are side letters viewed in academia and in practice currently? 
Yeah, so they're, they are, you know, uh, in practice, they are uh, omnipresent, right? So those are something, uh, you know, almost every investor is going to try to negotiate for a side letter. Uh, the level of uh, success they'll have will be dependent on their leverage. Um, but they are very common, not just in private equity, but uh, especially in the private equity context. From, a, from an academic perspective and from uh, also from um, regulators and, and politicians, you know, there's been kind of two key, uh, I think, approaches to side letter one which seems maybe the most uh, intuitive one and kind of rooted in kind of maybe fairness uh, um, uh, sense is that silos are basically unfair, right? So you have like this, you know, big document that everybody see, everybody sign, and then suddenly some investors get different terms, different uh, preferences. And this is done under, you know, the dark of night, so to speak, and behind closed uh, doors. Um, and there's a, a, you know, a sense this is not fair, this is not okay, this should be banned. This is, uh, and we bring some quotes from in our paper, Elizabeth Warren was trying to uh, outban the SEC as a very skeptical view of side letters. But there is also academic uh, uh, view that side letters are actually providing very uh, important uh, aspects to private equity negotiation and is the theory of efficient price dis- discrimination. Basically, different investors of different leverages uh, and the, the private equity sponsor can basically charge different prices from different investors utilizing silos, right? Instead of like the main document, they're basically giving a preferential treatment to some investors to encourage them to join the fund through silos. But both of those views really um, hinged on this sense that the silos will contain significant financial provisions, right? If you want to discriminate or efficiently discriminate uh, based on price, you need to have some price terms. When we went into this project, we expected to see a lot of financial provisions in the side letters. I'm going to have a spoiler alert. We found almost none, right? So it was very interesting for us to basically dispel both notions um, uh, or both concerns from uh, you know politicians and academics alike. Side letters are not what we really think that they're going to do. They don't really provide uh, uh, discrimination, price discrimination, regardless if you think it's good or bad. It just doesn't exist there. They contain much more um, minuscule, benign type of provisions, but also some problematic stuff that we can, I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you pop the hood, as you had mentioned earlier, you found some surprises in there like that. But like you said, one of the larger contributions of this paper is the analysis of about 250 or more side letters that you both reviewed. Uh, what was your methodology as you went through all these materials? This is one of the rare cases that we use no RA help for the coding um, because it's pretty complex. And also we want to make sure that we are consistent. As the, the two of us were basically created, uh, we read all of the side letters. Um, both of us, and we both coded them based on the metrics we created. So we started with a sample. We kind of tried to kind of like look what the common types of provisions and then kind of like start to hand code, manually code all those side letters. And then later on, once we had the whole Excel suite with the coding, we also clustered them together into specific buckets of what types of provisions are those. Are those provisions that relate to the governance of the fund? Are those financial provisions? Are those financial, are those regulatory compliance type of provisions and so on and so forth. Wow, all that without any research assistant or student support. I'm even more impressed coming into this now uh, with your background in side letters and now with doing all this data analysis. And so when you and Professor DeFontenay reviewed the side letters, what did your empirical analysis reveal about the evolution of the side letters over time? You know, we have uh, a lot more data about kind of our sample, but it uh, ranges over roughly... Um, 
close to 30 years from like the 1990s to 19, 2019 when we kind of um, collected uh, those uh, more recent documents um, and really kind of like four big eras in the private equity um, um, cycle. So pre-2005, pre then the gold era, the first gold era of private equity, 2005, 2008, then we had the financial crisis and post-financial crisis, and then the more recent uh, private equity era. And um, some things were pretty clear. Side letters became more complex, had way more uh, uh, provisions, words in them. They were more lengthy. And uh, that was a, a particularly important observation because as we'll talk later, we're not sure that's really uh, a needed uh, uh, development in the context of private uh, equity side letters. I think um, we also show side letters tend to differentiate based on the size of the investor. So most of our sellers were either endowment or public pension funds, but we had a pretty good um, distribution with the exception of, um, you know, sovereign growth, growth funds that we didn't really have. But the number of terms over time increased uh, significantly. The, uh, the complexity, the number of pages as reason, and the number of provisions, all of those kind of like traced uh, an increase over time. Um, we also see much more complex MFN provision. So um, I'm just going to stop and explain what MFN is. Um, so that's an acronym for most favorite nation provision. One of the interesting things with letters is that they are negotiated simultaneously with uh, uh, multiple parties. So different investors are negotiating letters at the same time. And the limited partnership agreement is also being negotiated at the same time. And that creates interesting uh, moral hazard issue, right? So if you're an investor, you would say, well, I want to wait and see what other people are doing before I'm going to sign my stuff, right? So private equity sponsors came out with this nifty idea, which is the most favorite nation uh, provision. Basically a provision that tells investors, listen, if based on the specific parameters, if somebody else gets better terms than you later on, you'll be able to match it. Right, so it prevents it prevents kind of like the need to delay your signing. You can actually, you know, negotiate what you really care about. And if anybody else ends up getting better treatment, you are promised that you're gonna get that as, as long as you qualify. Usually, it's you know, it's based on the size of your investment and some other exclusions. But we saw a lot of uh, that's kind of like was the simple notion of MFN. Over time, that became a very complex provision. It can take half a page to a page with a lot of exclusions, a lot of modifications or uh, language that uh, um, restricts your ability to go those uh, benefits. So that's another interesting development that we saw over time with funds. Again, going back to your spoiler alert, what else did you find most surprising in your analysis of these side letters? We saw almost no financial provisions at all. Most of the uh, provisions that we have seen or dealing with regulatory compliance, tax, and uh, to some extent governance provisions. But coming into it and based on regulators' sentiment uh, and academic discourse, we were expecting to find way more uh, in the way of uh, specific financial benefits that are, you know, when I say financial benefits, it could be a fee discount, right? So instead of paying the two and 20, you would pay less than that. It could be even promises, concrete promises to participate in co-investment. So one of the things that we thought that will be very, very common in letters is concrete promises that the general partner will give to specific investors about the right to co-invest alongside the fund in specific investments. So what do I mean by that? So let, let's say a private equity fund wants to buy a company. 
it could take and buy the company with the equity that it has and like a debt, but it could also like buy only 80% of the company with equity and debt that it has and give opportunity to other investors to contribute the rest of the equity. Why is that beneficial? It allows the uh, limited partners to participate in that transaction outside of the fund structure, which means that they can basically invest more, but also don't have to pay the same fees that they would pay under the fund, right? So they don't have to pay the 20% management fee. They don't have to pay as many fees uh, otherwise. So it's, it could be a pretty good deal, assuming you uh, are selecting a good investment, right? In, in the sense that the company that you end up buying generates good value. Investors really are keen uh, uh, um, to get those opportunities. So we're expecting, you know, specific promises about the opportunity to uh, participate in, 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 in those type of co-investments. And we basically saw, saw none. We saw language to the extent that uh, the general partner acknowledges the wishes of a specific investor to participate, but nothing concrete to the level where it actually gives you a right to do so. And that was, uh, I think, very surprising to the both of us. Sounds like a lot of these findings will change the viewpoints of these settlers, especially in academia and regulators and governments. How mm -hmm. can this data be used to debunk these claims about side letter in the literature? Well, first of all, I just want to caution, and I think like any empirical work, especially in this uh, opaque uh, world of private equity, you know, our sample is limited. We did our best we could to get a representative sample, but, uh, you know, it's still relatively small. 250 is nothing to to thousands and thousands of those, right? So I think one of the hopes is to encourage more research into that and encourage other people to try to uh, supplement and, and uh, um, contribute to that uh, emerging literature looking into the inner works of private equity. Um, and I think the second thing is to use the data that we do have to kind of um, better tailor the regulatory attention. So I think what we try to highlight in this paper is that the attention to the concerns about financial um, discrimination uh, may have been unwarranted. And actually some of the regulatory regulatory um, effort in limiting silos might be uh, counterproductive. But at the same time, we do want to highlight that there are costs that are associated with private equity negotiations. So there are transaction costs that are being borne by the negotiating of uh, those letters, by attorney fees uh, that are borne by investors on both, you know, uh, um, the investor and the fund basically pay, pay for both sides' negotiations, both for the general partner and for their own negotiations. So we are um, um, we are not sure the development of sellers currently is the best uh, and efficient way to run uh, private equity. There's a host of collective action issues that. Um, and party patterns that may lead us to the way we are, but we try to encourage both regulators and investors themselves to think about how we can streamline the process because it's clear to us that there are some provisions that don't necessarily need to go into side letters. From reading those provisions, a lot of them can are provisions that could easily be incorporated into the larger agreements uh, and basically reduce the cost of negotiating. There are some specific stuff that, you know, salaries may be the best venue for them, but uh, uh, I would venture to say that the majority isn't. Uh, and that brings uh, questions about how can we move to a world where a lot of this language is actually moving into uh, the limited partnership agreement and is removed from the salaries. 
Right. Yep. You've anticipated next, my next question. I was going to ask about limited partnership agreements and how side letters affect them, but it sounds like a lot of things that you found in side letters could actually be potentially moved to these limited partnership agreements. A, yes. And B, and I think that's uh, even a more concerning aspect of it is that generally speaking, as part of contract law, you know, the limited partnership agreement um, recognizes the fact that some parties may engage in uh, uh, side letters, right? So it's allowed by the limited partnership agreement. But generally speaking, the limited partnership agreement should be prevailing over side letters. So any language in the side letter that is basically detrimental to any party in the in the, the private equity fund uh, needs to be approved by the limited partnership agreement. And what we have seen in the side letters is that there are quite a few instances but that um, provisions might actually be detrimental to other parties, but are not cleared by the limited partnership agreement. And that um, is uh, uh, something that needs to be ironed out because um, to the extent the solider is modifying the limited partnership agreement in a way that is uh, detrimental to other parties, that's something that needs to be disclosed and approved by those parties. Um, and that is often not the case in, uh, based on the sample that we uh, were able to decipher. Another related concept that you cover in your paper is contract modularity. Uh, so what is this concept? How does it come into play with side letters? Yeah, so the contract modularity literature basically talks about the value of slicing legal arrangement into different documents, right? Um, so in an MA agreement, uh, in an MA transaction, you might have several different documents dealing with various different aspects of the deal. And, and the notion is that there is efficiencies often in passing out different types of obligations outside of the key main uh, agreement because it might be faster to negotiate, it might have uh, less uh, detrimental implications on the larger agreement. There's all kinds of reasons why you want to do it, and that's why we, why we see in complex transaction a series of documents and not just one big agreement, right? So that's the module literature in a whole. Um, and siloters are an example of contract modularity where we basically have the limited partnership agreement and then we have a series of siloters. But uh, what we do see in our in our sample is that often that actually creates inefficiencies, right? So, you know, contract modularity is very valuable when you are doing it in a way that improves the overall uh, transaction costs of generating that transaction. And what we keep on hammering in this paper is that it seems that siloters are actually an efficient way to go about negotiating siloters. And to the extent you want to discriminate based on price, siloters are also an efficient way to go about it. And we um, are pretty explicit in our uh, call for those uh, arrangements to be incorporated uh, in the limited partnership agreement. So sometimes the contract modularity can be sliced too thin and these things, these uh, documents are too to spread to, out to, 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 uh, and 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 uh, again some of those provisions really are boilerplate provisions that we see kind of like in any side letter and can be easily be um, you know modified to kind of be applicable through the LPA so instead of wasting the time of negotiating you know extra 20 provisions you can just uh, uh, do it once in 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 one document right so mm -hmm. that is and that and, you know we talk about it in the paper but that is um part of the cost um of having multiple sites, right? So when you talk about MA transaction, and this is where the contract modularity started, you have two sides negotiate, right? You have the, the seller and the buyer, each of them has a set of lawyers. So kind of dividing which documents will contain what is easy to do, 
the private equity context, you have the limited partnership agreement and you have multiple sides to it. And then you have multiple negotiations on each of those side letters. It's really hard to coordinate, right? So the efficiency of modularity here is really questionable. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, based on all this, why are we using side letters now? How do we get to this point? This is what we try to uh, flesh out through a series of interviews with people in the field. Uh, we talk to partners at law firms, we talk to investment side people, we talk to institutional investors, uh, and so on. And, and you know, there's different stories, but like we try to highlight several of those uh, uh, in, in the paper. Um, it's pretty clear that um, the incentives of the general partner really are to play along with sellers. And there, there are two key, I would say two key uh, observations uh, here that I want to highlight. One is that um, it almost costs them nothing, right? So um, they don't pay for the negotiations. This is uh, costs that are borne by the fund. Um, so for them, it's a costless uh, effort. And the second and uh, equally important is that general partners are really, really uh, wary of um, making changes to the limited partnership agreement. For them, this is the part-dependent document. Mm. Any concession they're going to make in the limited partnership agreement the following fund they're gonna they're gonna try to raise will have to start from that starting point because the party will say, okay, this is what you do in fund five. Now we're at fund six, we wanna keep that. Right. So they wanna keep that document as unchanged as they can. So to the extent they're willing to give anything out, they rather do it in side letter, which is much more opaque. It's not something that often translates from one party to the other. So they're more comfortable doing it with side So that's from the sponsor side why they don't, you know. At the very least, they don't care or they have somewhat of an incentive of having the side letters uh, in place. From investor perspective, there's a, it's a classical prisoner dilemma situation. I, no, I think everybody would be better off if they negotiated together to put all of those agreements in the limited partnership agreement, but to the extent they can't negotiate together and uh, that's the case, then they will try, each of them is trying to maximize their own benefit by trying to get something out of the general partner through side right? So there's incentive to at least do it. And not only that, if you know that other parties are getting side letters, you're going to say, well, I want a side letter too. I want to get something too, right? There's uh, a very kind of behavioral component to 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 chasing the side letter because you know the other parties are also doing it at the same time. And then we have the lawyers. And for lawyers, this is uh, an important component of uh, the billable hours that they spend in forming a fund. So they don't necessarily have a, the, the incentive to try to cut it down. Uh, uh, if you can charge significant hourly rates for negotiations, that's, um, that's not something that you necessarily want to see uh, go. So they don't really have an incentive to let it go. And equally important is that lawyers want to show their clients that they are doing good by them, right? And if you can't really make a lot of changes to the limited partnership agreement, one of the only ways for you to show your client that you actually uh, produce something is by showing them that you were able to achieve something in the silence. So there's also a component of the lawyers, basically uh, the, the, the key avenue for them in the negotiation of a private equity deal is to be able to generate some silent concessions. Um, so they have an incentive there too. There's a lot of human nature underlying these side letter yes. motivations is what I'm hearing yes. here. Like there's caution, there's billable hours, there's the prisoner's dilemma. And so this is all kind of locking the parties into uh, yeah. the side letter work here that there might be better ways to go about it as you and Professor DeFontenay discuss. 
That's which hope. is a perfect segue to my next question, right? What recommendations does your analysis provide for recontextualizing the views of side letters and improving these investment practices? For us, uh, part of it is disclosure. Uh, right now, side letters are not often, not always disclosed to other parties. And um, sometimes they're only going to be uh, 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 specific provisions that are going to be disclosed. So we think that, you know, sunlight is the best dis disinfector. It could help the prisoner dilemma if other parties are seeing what other parties are getting and understanding this is not that big of a deal. It might reduce that prisoner dilemma and the race, so to speak, the race to the silent type of phenomenon. Um, we think, um, as I already mentioned a few times, there's a lot of provisions that can go into the Lint partnership Agreement. They have no need to be in silent. So moving them to uh, the limited partnership agreement will be uh, a key. Um, and to the extent that um, we want to have price discrimination between parties, we really think this is something that should be in the limited partnership agreement. There's no need to hide it. There's no need to be shy about it. This is something that is uh, sophisticated parties should acknowledge. And we want to encourage both limited partners and general partners to think about incorporating the limited partnership agreement. And still through all that, the lawyers can still show their clients that they have their best interests at heart, as you had mentioned, that they're doing good by them. Even if their bill of hours might be a little bit affected, they're still the, look, I'm doing the good work and this is how right. it's going to improve. Right. And we didn't talk about it, but um, institutional investors have uh, an organization called ILPA um, that kind of um, um, tries to, you know, to reduce that uh, prison dilemma between investors trying to coordinate to put best practices in place. So a lot of our recommendations are geared toward investors themselves pushing private equity companies uh, uh, to make changes. Um, we think ILPA has a, a really important role in trying to alleviate some of those coordination efforts between investors, um, but some of it might be need to be taken by regulators as well. Mm, okay, great. So there are efforts by parties underway in some ways to mm -hmm. improve these already. Yes. Speaking of which, there is some recently introduced SEC proposed rules that you mentioned at the top of our discussion on private equity that's focused on side letters in particular. Will they help correct some of these issues uncovered in your data? So I think the SEC has generally correctly identified their issues with the way private equity uh, um and the private equity industry is being managed, like there are some friction points that need to be addressed. We think that generally speaking, the, the proposed rules, so to some extent, miss the forest for the trees. Um, really, there's an effort to prevent silos from dealing with specific aspects that we didn't really see uh, in, in silos. Uh, so the concern about financial arrangement is not really there. And the second thing is that the SEC proposal might actually increase the costs um, uh, for side letter negotiation and for private equity arrangement, not reduce them. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the drafting will be need to be more careful based on the SEC current uh, proposals. And they really don't really try to address the collective action, action issues that we talk about. So standardization, moving things into the limited partnership agreement, this is where we think the SEC can have a really useful element and voice and when we suggest that uh, the focus will be there and not necessarily on prohibiting specific uh, provisions from silos altogether. So with that, what do you most hope readers take away from your article? It's an interesting, as you said, it's an interesting story about um, the, um, the ecosystem of legal documents and how sometimes the opaqueness level of documents allows for somewhat peculiar and potentially inefficient uh, system to 
to thrive, so to speak, right? So I think the ability to shed light on a relatively dark corner of the financial system is super, always super fun. Um, I think we learned a lot from it. I think it does a lot more to learn. But I think what we highlighted is that potentially our concerns about what's happening in Saladas were misguided, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to address Saladas altogether. It's just that the problems we identified are different than the ones that people have suspected they will uh, uh, bring about. We'll link to Professor Neely's scholarship on this and everything else and your Twitter profile, of course, on our podcast page. Thank you very much again for joining the podcast today, Professor Neely. I hope to see you back again when the next paper is coming out. Thank you. And uh, um Don't threaten me, I will be here. Okay, great, excellent. (laughs) We've been discussing Professor Neely's forthcoming article, Side Letter Governance, co-authored with Elizabeth DeFontenay and forthcoming later this year in the Washington University Law Review. I highly recommend reading the article in full. We've only scratched the surface of the piece's groundbreaking analysis and contribution to the literature. You can find it right now on SSRN. Check out our podcast page for a link. For a complete listing of Professor Neely's published work, visit the University of Wisconsin Law School Repository. Thank you again for listening. Find links to the paper we discussed today and links to all our previous podcasts at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Stay up to date on Wisconsin Law School Scholarship by subscribing to this podcast via the Apple iTunes Store or follow either at Wisconsin Law or at UW Law Profs on Twitter for updates on faculty publications. See you next time and happy researching.